Lord Jesus, I just pray for this day, Lord. I pray for one for our hearts, Lord. Prepare our hearts to receive your word, Lord. Uh, make our hearts tender, able to be convicted of our sin. And, and I pray by your grace and your spirit, Lord, that you would you'd help us repent and change and, and trust you more, obey you more, Lord. As we look at, at Israel, Lord, as we look at these judges, we, they reveal us. Help us see ourselves, Lord. And, and help us see your grace as, as the true deliverer, Jesus Christ. And how we can uh, receive your grace and cling to you. And, and, and by, your, by your power and your resources, we can change. So bless this time, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, just a quick recap of the book. This is the 400-year period uh, where Israel is settling into the promised land. It's a, it's a, it's a 400-year period where they repeatedly go into this, these cycles of sin and, and deliverance by God. In this, the, the kind of big theme you'll see in this book is that everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. It comes up over and over again. We see that they, they, they do what's evil in the eyes of the Lord. They worship idols, and, and this whole book is a, is a downward spiral. So unfortunately, as we get into this book, and we'll see today, it gets worse and worse until the end where it's just, just tragedy. And unfortunately, Joel has to preach that one, so he gets the, the joy of doing that week. <laughs> but um, but uh, let's uh, do a quick recap of what happened last week. What we saw is a, a typical cycle of sin, right? They, they sin, they do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. We see this, uh, the Israel crying out for supplication. They cry out for help. Here's the cycle here. Uh, well, they end up in servitude. I'm sorry. The second part is they, they, they end up being oppressed by the Midianites for, for seven years where the Midian just completely comes in and, and wrecks everything. Their whole economy uh, takes, uh, takes all their produce. It, it just totally destroys the land. And Israel is hiding. And then what would lead to is supplication. There would be some kind of either repentance or, or crying out to the Lord for help. And that happens here in chapter 6. But there's a little break in the cycle in chapter 6. Something different happens that doesn't normally happen. What, what God does is He sends a prophet. He sends a prophet after they cry out. And the prophet reminds them of their problem. Right? The, the prophet's trying to make it clear that, that their problem is that they have rebelled against God. Right? That they've done evil in the eyes of the Lord. That they've, they've turned to idols. And it's just this interesting little break. And, and, and so he, the, we see that the, God wants them to understand their problem when, where they don't see it. And I think there's a little problem that their, their repentance is not genuine as well. And finally, God calls, sends salvation. We see the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. We saw that last week. He, the Lord calls him. And I believe that angel of the Lord is a, a pre-incarnate jesus christ right god with flesh on but we definitely see it's it's yahweh it's god the angel of the lord that comes to him and and uh and gideon is very fearful but although gideon is fearful what we see is that that he obeys god he he, he uh 
God calls him to tear down the idols in his town, right, at his father's house. And he goes in the night and he tears down these idols and he builds an altar to the Lord, right? There's this, there's this kind of fearful courage and obedience that happens with Gideon. So he starts out really well. And God repeatedly is, is building, up his, uh, building him up, even to the point where, where after he does this, they want to kill him. But, but nevertheless, God gathers the, the Israelites around, uh, around Gideon for battle. Right? They prepare for battle. Uh, Midian is coming again, right? And that's where it ended, that's where it ended us with us last week, is, is them preparing for battle. And what we're going to see with Gideon today is, he, he, this is this crazy thing is he transformed from this humble, obedient, fearful leader to a, an, an increasingly prideful, a vengeful individual. We see this crazy shift, and it's a shift not only in Gideon's life, but it's a shift in the whole book of Gideon, and the whole book of Judges, because each judge after Gideon is very flawed, and they're more and more flawed as we go to the end. And one of the huge things we see with Gideon is, is he really steals the credit from God. Although God wants the credit, he steals the credit. So the first part, I got this divided in, in 7, 1 through 18, we see uh, the 300 and the dream. That's how I, I remember these sections. But one important thing to read is in verse 2. Look at seven, chapter 7, verse 2. This sets the, I mean, the tone for this whole section. The Lord says to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Right? So God has gathered this army around Gideon, and the Lord sees, all right, this army is way too big, right? If I deliver uh, Israel with this army, they're going to take credit. They're going to boast over me that they've done this, right? How great their accomplishment was, how great a fighting military strength they had. And God wants none of it. God wants the glory. God wants them to see that he's the deliverer, not Gideon. Right? Not them, not their strength. He wants, he wants them to worship him and follow him and see, and see their need for him. And so God decides to, to tear down this army. So we see it happens in two stages. The first stage is in verse 3 where, where God tells Gideon to announce to all the men, hey, if anyone is fearful, go home. And basically what we see is 22,000 of the men go home. They're afraid, and only 10,000 remain, right? The second stage, God tells Gideon to, to take the men down to, to the watering hole, right, to go drink. And so they all go down there, and, and God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to divide the army into two groups. One group is, is guys that drink like com- people with common sense, right, and grab the water with their hands and drink out of their hands like a, a normal human being. Now, the other group, is going to be people who get down on their hands and knees and drink like dogs, right? And so he divides these out, and it ends up 9,700 who drink with common sense, and 300 drink like dogs. Now, what does God do? He says, those 300, those are the ones that are going to fight, right? Those are going to be, oh, those are the 300 I, I choose to, to deliver Israel with. And it's just interesting because there's no way I would have picked those 300. I, 
You know, to look like, what's wrong with you? Splash some water in their face. Like, drink like a man. Drink like a human being. And I think it's just part of the, the subtle humor of who God chooses. Right? God doesn't need this, the most powerful. He doesn't need the people with common sense. He'll pick even people who drink like dogs. Right? And, and, and I think that's part of, you know, God wanting the glory. And so what we see is there's a 99% reduction in the army. Now, you got to think, if, if Gideon was fearful before, he's got to be freaking out now. He might not be showing it, but he's shaking in his boots like, how are we going to overcome this army? you got to remember the, that this Midianite army is a, a huge army. It's described as that they would come in like locusts, like a plague of locusts just devouring the land. It tells us that they had so many camels, you couldn't count them. Even in, in this chapter, it tells us that, that their number was like sand on a seashore. So this is a huge army, right? There's no way Israel, even with the big army, could have defeated them, most likely. But God graciously continues to, to, to give Gideon reassurance. Before the battle, God tells Gideon to go and spy on the Midianite camp. And while he's there, he, over, he overhears uh, to one of the soldiers sharing about, about his dream his dream is that there was this loaf of barley bread that came down and, and crushed the tent. And they interpret this dream as that, that God's given uh, the Midianites into the hands of, of Gideon and his army. Right? So these guys are, are fearful. The, the, men, the Midianites are trembling. God's created some kind of a fear within them. that They know that, that their destruction is, is coming. And so Gideon is strengthened. He's strengthened from the battle. It tells us he worships God after he hears this, right? God, by his grace, is, is building this man up. So he gathers the troops for battle. He divides the 300 in, into three companies, it tells us. And they all have, they have a, a trumpet, which they have 300 trumpets, which is more, they, the men who left, left their supplies. They have these jars and a... And, and, uh, and a torch, right? And he, he tells them to follow his lead, right? Surround the camp, follow my lead. And they're, they're at, at his command, there's a blow their trumpets and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. For the Lord and for Gideon, right? Now, this is a, a very strange command. We see this kind of a, a subtle shift in Gideon's character right here, right? For the Lord and for Gideon? You know, like... Why, where did Gideon's name get involved in this, right? right? God's already telling him, no, I, 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 paired, I made this army smaller because I want the glory. I want them to know it was, it was I who delivered you. And now Gideon is, is suddenly, subtly putting his name as part of the story. And, and we're going to see that that grows. That grows in Gideon where it starts with maybe me and the Lord, right, to just being about him. And so I want to read this, this shift for you. I want to hear, read the battle to you. Pick up in verse 19 of chapter 7. It says here, So Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. And the three uh, companies blew their trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hand the torches, 
and in the right hand the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp. And all the army ran, and they cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beshira towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Mehulah, and Tabith. And the men of Israel called out from Natali and Asher and Manasseh, and they all pursued after Midian. Right? So we, we see this amazing scene. Right? They surround the, the army. They break the glass. It throws everyone into a frenzy. Right? And it tells us when they, when they blow the trumpets now, the Midianite army, they start fighting and killing each other. Right? And, and the 300, I mean, imagine how amazing this would be watching this. They're just standing and watching this happen. They don't even fight. Right? They don't even fight. God totally does it all. Right? God doesn't need thousands of people. He doesn't even need the 300. Right? God could do it through any means, but, but he's given them a glimpse of his power and, and how, he can, how he can save and move. And, and, and God does this amazing miracle there. And you see what happens. Now, the army flees, and they turn to more conventional means of battle, right? They, they begin a, a attacking the fleeing soldiers. And, and you even see this rally cry where, where other men join into the fight with the 300. Now, after this success that Gideon experiences, you, you begin to see a huge change in his character. Huge change. Chapter 1, 8, 1 through 21, you see this, this thirst for vengeance, right? It's all about revenge after this for Gideon. It's, it's as if he gets puffed up, like, look at who, who I am, what I've done, and no one can stand against him. So it tells us that after the battle, that Gideon's pursuing after the kings of the Midianite army. Their names are uh, Zeba and Zalmunna. And he's, he's pursuing them, and as he goes, his, him and his men are exhausted. And, and we see that he stops in these two cities, Succoth and Peniel. He stops in these two cities, and he asks for necessities for his exhausted troops. And in both of these cases, he's, he's denied. Right? They refuse to help him. And it's, it's most likely because they're afraid, afraid of what would happen to them. Right, If they don't defeat the Midianites, if they're going to come back for these cities for helping Gideon. So they're, they're afraid. They're, you know, they're covering their back. And Gideon is outraged. Right? He vows that, that when he captures these kings, he's going to come back and, and have his revenge. Right? How dare you deny me? We see definitely Gideon has changed. Gideon has changed. Now, these times, these were, these were great opportunities in Gideon's life for him to glorify the Lord. I mean, think about it. These men are, are fearful. They're not, they see 300 guys, and you're going to take out the Midianites? How are they supposed to believe that? It would have been a great time for Midian, uh, Gideon to say, no, look what the Lord has done. He, he's called me. He's, he's, he's promised to deliver the, the Midianites into our hands, and I'm just being faithful God's using me as his chosen instrument, and, and by his grace, look at what he's already done with just 300 men, and we didn't even fight, right? 
He could have said that and, and built their strength and, 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 and called them to trust the Lord. But instead, how dare you deny me? Who do you think? Don't you know who I am? Who do you think you are? Right? Gideon's still in glory. It's, not, it's now about him. He, he's tasted success. He's, he's, not, he's now standing, you know, pridefully. And, and after he captures Zeba and Zomina, he returns looking for revenge. It tells us that, that he returned to Succoth to teach the men a lesson. And it tells us that he, he flailed, which means he, he beat 70 of the city's elders with thorns and briars. It's a cruel lesson from a cruel man. Never refuse Gideon, right? That's what he's teaching them. How dare you? Who do you think you are? And then he goes to Penuel and he breaks down the city's tower and he kills the city's men. That's in 8, 13 through 17. And so this is the first time in, in the book of Judges that you now see Israel fighting against Israel. And it won't be the last time. Gideon's thirst for vengeance is not yet satisfied, though. Verses 8, 18 through 21, we see the, the final scene of, of Gideon's war, right? This, this battle, and, and now where he's about to execute these, these two Midianite kings. He, the scene reveals something interesting. And I think it'll, it'll, we'll see the, the irony later is that, that these kings have killed his brothers. And so his pursuit, his vengeance is, is driven by, this, by what these kings have done to his brothers. Right? He's going he's gonna to pay them back. He's going to get justice. And to satisfy his thirst for revenge, he, he orders his firstborn son, Jether, to kill these kings, which would have been humiliating to them, right? To, for a, 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 a troop of lower rank to kill them. He wants to utterly humiliate them. And, and what we see with Jether is he's, He's afraid. He refuses to do it because he's scared. And, and it's, it, you get this kind of picture of Jether is, is a picture of who Gideon once was, right? This, this fearful individual, right? And, and, now, and we get this, this picture of now who Gideon has become, right? He's transformed from a fearful individual to a vengeful one. After that, we see the king and the ephod, chapter 8, verses 22 through 28, right? With, with Midian, the Midianites no longer a threat, you would almost feel like, okay, the story should end here, right? You, you, should, you should see right here, oh, and that land had rest for 40 years. That's where the typical story that we've been reading would end. But this one doesn't end there. It gets worse. Impressed with Gideon's success for battle, the, the leaders of Israel, they, they want to make Gideon king, right? They, they, they wrongly assume that their problems are lack of political and military power, right? They, they see that there's a, a, a problem. They see the sin cycle, and they want to break out of this cycle, but, but they, they wrongly assume that what they need is a king, right? They need a, a, a military force, someone that's going to protect us and defend us, where the prophet has already shown them, right, what, what's their true problem? Their true problem is that they've rejected God as their king. 
right? Their true problem is, is they've turned to idols. And so they see this problem, but, but they're looking for the wrong solution. And they think they're going to find it in Gideon. And so how does Gideon respond? We see Gideon's response in verse 23, right? His response sounds very humble and righteous, but, but we're going to see based on his actions that, that I, I think his, his motives were, were mixed. In verse 23, he says, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. Yahweh will rule over you, right? So he, he denies kingship and says, no, God, God's going to be your king, right? If it ended there, you'd think, all right, man, Gideon, hey, he, he ended kind of well. But no, Gideon's actions begin to show that he, he regards himself as a king. First, you'll see that he requests the spoils of war from the Israelites. He, it amounts to 43 pounds of gold is what he gets from them. He takes a tribute offering, which would have been, I looked up just the, today's value would have been about $700,000, right? That's how much that gold would have been valued at. He takes symbols of royalty. It tells us that he took crescent ornaments and pendants and purple garments worn by the kings. And he takes the collars that were around the necks of the king's camels. It appears that he's, he's building, building up his royal treasury as king. Second, he uses this, this gold to construct an, an ephod and set up uh, his hometown as a place of worship. An ephod is a garment worn by a high priest and, and, and usually used with, uh, made with gold. And basically what we see here is it, 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 there's this kind of picture of, of where Gideon begins kind of like Moses. If you remember the story of Moses where, where Moses is very fearful, right? He's afraid and he's, he's trying to make excuses to get out of what God's calling him to. But then he turns to almost a, 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 an Aaron-type character, right? Aaron, while Moses is gone, he, he constructs a, an idol, right? The, the golden uh, calf, where, which causes Israel to, to fall into idolatry. So it's like he shifts to be, from being a Moses to an Aaron. And, and the, the crazy thing here is you've got to think about it, right? When, when Gideon obeyed the Lord, when, when he was afraid, yet he obeyed, he, he tore down the city's idol, and, and he builds an altar to the Lord. Well, now he's building an, an, idol, an idolatrous place of worship where he had once placed uh, this altar to the Lord. And this would have, uh, you know, if, if he's starting to operate like a king, it would have been politically advantageous for him to set up his city as a place of worship where people would come to his city. He could benefit off of this. And it tells us that this idol became a snare to Gideon and his family, as we'll see. And it tells us that all of Israel poured after it. Third thing we see with Gideon's action is in verses 29 through 35 of chapter 8, it describes the rest of Gideon's life. What we see that is that Gideon has many wives, and he fathers 70 sons. And you got to assume if he had 70 sons, he had a lot of daughters as well, right? Which is, he started acting like a king. 
right? The average citizen didn't have the money or resources to have many wives, and, and he takes a harem. You also see another thing is, is his son Abimelech. This is so subtle, but his son Abimelech, his name is my father is king, right? So they see this kind of subtle. He's, he's denying that he's king, but he's acting like it. I, I got a quote from David Beldman, a, a scholar on this. He says, as pious sounding as Gideon's, Gideon's refusal of kingship seems, seems, it is really nothing more than a small but calculated manipulation of the good name of Yahweh to advance his own personal and political agenda. That's what Gideon is doing. And yet, at the end of all this mess, verse 28, we see that in the days of Gideon, the land had rest. Finally, finally, after all that, there's rest. And I think it's, I mean, it's totally God's grace. Like, why would he give them rest after, after all this mess? After, after totally not even getting the message that he's trying to deliver to them. Right? They don't get it. They don't get it that their problem is that they've rejected God as their king. Yet God is gracious and, and gives the land rest. Now the last section that we're going to cover, it's really the last 829 through 957. We get this account that I'm going to give you a summary of what happens after Gideon dies. And, and it's, it's, it, 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 we see the story of, of Abimelech, Gideon's son. And what Gideon does is, is he basically tries to forcefully make himself king. What his dad did subtly, he goes and does obvious and overtly. He tries to take this kingship by force, and, and, he, and he does. He becomes king, and he kills 70 of his brothers, it tells us, to ensure his, his place on the throne, right, so that he would have no challenge to his rule. He kills them, and, and so the irony there is, if you look at Gideon, right, Gideon's thirst for vengeance is driven by, his, by avenging his brothers who, who these kings died. And now look how, look at the downward spiral. Now Abimelech's trying to be king and killing his brothers. How horrible is that? Abimelech's life, his, his, his three-year rule uh, ends with tragedy. The, the Israel and Abimelech end up in this civil war, and basically Abimelech is, is killed in a very shameful way. You can go read it yourself. It's just a mess. I mean, life without God is a mess, right? When you try to do it your own way, it's a mess. When you try to steal credit from God, it's a mess. What begins is in, in sharing a piece of the glory, right, to, to Gideon and Yahweh, or Yahweh and Gideon, begins to being just Yahweh's totally thrown to the side, and it's all about Gideon and his son. Abimelech is even worse. So what can we learn from this? What can we learn is, one is, is that we're easily tempted to uh, claim part of the glory that belongs to God, right? We're so easily tempted to do that. And, and so in, all the, in the whole book of Judges so far of, of what I've been studying, I mean, Gideon just hit me the worst. I mean, I'm Gideon, right? I, I, I want to steal the, the credit from God, right? Uh, when, when I'm unsuccessful, right, it's easy to be 
humble and say, oh, you know, hey, God's in control. I'm, I'm just trying to trust him and, and he's going to work and he's faithful. Right. But as soon as I'll just be honest, as soon as I get a little success, then it becomes like Gideon. Well, look at what I did. Look how great I am. Look how successful I am. You know, I want to win. I want to be the best. I want to get better at everything. I'm constantly, it seems like, (laughs) trying to prove myself how great I am, right? That's what happens in in the flesh when we're we're trying to steal God's glory. And, you know, I, I confess I do it, and I guarantee you we all do it, right? How often are we prone to claim some of our own salvation, right, as trying to steal some of the, the, the merit of our salvation, right? Look at how good I am, right? Man, I'm really good. Man. No wonder God chose me, right? Or even more, uh, even in this way, we can look at others and look at, man, look at, look, just being disgusted at their sin and Look at those sinners and, and almost begin to elevate ourselves like we did something, like we cleaned ourselves up. Right? That, that's stealing the glory. That's stealing the credit because anything we are, it's because of God's grace. Right? We don't deserve anything from God. We didn't earn anything from God. If it wasn't for God's grace, we'd be the, the worst of all sinners. Yet we can tend to want to elevate ourselves and, and look down at others. Right? And that's, just, that's just pride in our lives. And I think we could look at Gideon's life and take a good a warning about that, right? Well, we'll start out as me and God, right? I, I participated in this. We'll end up as in just totally being all about you. Another thing we can see is how often do we, we see the work of God and want to think we're the reason for, for the blessing, right? We think we, we, think we did it, right? God provides Maybe he, he provides for financially, and then it becomes about how, how hard of workers we are or how good we are at budgeting or financing when in reality it's all about God, right? Or, or it could be with your kids. You finally get your kids to obey, and someone sees it, and, and you want to puff up. and Man, I am a great parent, right? I mean, we do this constantly. We do this constantly. Now, why is this such a problem? Well, because God wants the credit, right? That's what we see in this story is God wants the credit, right? Mankind is created to glorify God. We're created to put God on display. We're created to display and for people to look at us and see what God is like, right? That's why 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. God wants to be glorified. He wants people to see their need for him. And then we're like Gideon, right? When we get to the when the when the moment to to share God's grace comes, we want to we steal it. And so I just got a couple just things that you can do to fight glory sharing. Just a few things. I'm going to try to wrap up really fast. But the first thing is we need to reflect God's glory and not absorb it. Reflect God's glory. Develop the habit in your life of giving God the credit, right, in everything that happens, both, especially in success, right? Success is where we want to steal the credit. So when something good happens, develop the habit of giving God credit. Second thing you can do is cultivate gratitude, right? When, 
when God does something amazing in your life, share it with people. Right? Tell God stories. Write them down. You have to be sharing these things. We have to be reminded above all else. The other things you can do is, is to, to humble yourself, is uh, fight for obscurity. I, I, I love this concept. It's uh, from Tim Mon at Redemption Gilbert talks about it all the time. Do stuff that keeps you humble. Do things, acts of service where no one's going to find out. You're not going to get any cre- praise or any credit, and it just keeps you humble, right? And when you're doing it, you remind, me, you remind yourself of, you know what? This is all for God's glory. I don't deserve any of the credit, right? I'm not too big to do, to do this low, menial task. Do those things. The second thing I think we learn here is, and, and this brings us to the gospel, is that, that we need the right solution to break out of the cycle, right? Israel failed to see what the true solution was to their, their sin cycles. They, and, and just like Israel, when, when we get in these sin cycles, we often look to the wrong thing. We often, what we look to is more of the same idol that got us into this problem in the first place, right? We don't think I need to change. I just need more of this idol, and then I'll be happy. Well, this story is a, is a reminder of that we need a king, right? That, that when we're rebelling against God, when there's sin and, and trouble in our life, it's, it, we need, we need a, a, the right solution, which is God as our king. And so we have to humble ourselves and, and, and cry out to him and, and repent and forsake our idols, right? Because Jesus is the true deliverer. Right? He's the true deliverer. And, 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 and fortunately, right, we're, we're not in this judges period. We can look back and we can see how Jesus has delivered us, right? That Jesus humbled himself, unlike Gideon, right? Gideon exalted himself, right? He, he gave himself. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? And so we need to see that Christ is the true deliverer if we really want to break these cycles in our life. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I, I just thank you for this amazing story, Lord. Teach us. If we're convicted, Lord, I, I pray that we would cry out to you, our deliverer, Lord. Not remain in our cycles of sin, but, but seek you. You're the only one that can change us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.